Well, I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll begin our scripture reading there from verses 1 through 11 as we have been studying through this book. And we come now to a section of text regarding Christians and lawsuits. Christians and lawsuits. Litigation between believers and how they should handle that. As we have been learning, the church at Corinth has... Numerous issues in which they need to deal with, and we've learned about various factions that have occurred within the church, their tolerance of immorality in chapter 5, their pride and their arrogance in chapter 5, and now we come to chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11, in which there's a situation of litigation between believers and how they ought to have handled it rather than how they are dealing with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, we read this. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not, is it so that there is not among you one wise man will not be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of our God. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again this morning. Father, once again we come and ask that you would grant to us insight and understanding. That you would fill us with wisdom and the knowledge and your word. That you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. That, Father, you would fill us with your Spirit. Illumine our minds, O God, that we might know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Lawsuits, as you all know, are very common. And they're quite common. In fact, some people might say they're too common in our society. People would probably agree that people would sue other people over anything just about today. For example, I'd read last week of a woman in Oklahoma who sued Winnebago for $1.75 million after she crashed her 70 
mile per hour motorhome that was going down the street while she was making a sandwich. And she argued that, well, the firm didn't tell her that she wasn't supposed to leave the wheel when it was on cruise control. Uh, Terrence Dixon of Bristol, Pennsylvania, she won a half a million dollars from the insurance company of a family whose home that he had broken into because he had gotten stuck in the garage for eight days. And then there was Carl Truman, 19 years old, of Los Angeles, California, who won $74,000. Can you believe that? From an insurance company, plus medical expenses. When his neighbor ran over his hand, that was while he was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. And then there was Kathleen Robertson of Austin, Texas, who won $80,000 plus medical costs when she was in a store. She had sued the owners of the store because she had tripped over a toddler in the store and broke her ankle. It was her own son she tripped over. But nothing perhaps takes the cake of the man whose car was hit by a dump truck. He filed against the city for $3,600 in damages. And on this filing, he said, quote, my personal vehicle was parked and backed into by a city vehicle, unquote. He failed to mention, of course, he was the dump truck driver. He worked for the city. But then we think about biblical lawsuits, don't we? And we see, well, you know what? Some things just are far-fetched. ChristianityToday.com, September 1st, 2003, had a little article entitled, quote, Egyptian Law Dean plans a suit against all the Jews of the world for exodus theft. When it says, after the ten plagues, Pharaoh finally let Moses lead the Israelites out of Egypt, says the book of Exodus, the former slaves, quote, plundered the Egyptians. Now, more than three millennia later, Egypt wants its stuff back. Nabil Halmi, dean of the law school at Egypt's University of Al-Zakhziri, is suing, quote, all the Jews of the world for stealing from, quote, the pharaonic Egyptian gold, jewelry, cooking utensils, silver ornaments, clothing, and more, leaving Egypt in the middle of the night with all this wealth, which today is priceless, unquote, according to the Cairo newspaper. Well, he says he got his statistics from Exodus 35, 12 to 36, which details all the gold and all the treasures which were used in the tabernacle. But still, Hilmi should catch up on his history Explained one rabbi, because somebody had already tried that. They had already tried that some 2,000 years ago, suing all the Jews of the world. And it was presided over the case by Alexander the Great. And the story is recounted in the writing of Sanhedrin 91a, where it was recorded that there was a particular individual, Viha ben Persia, who responded on behalf of the Jews... And it went something like this. What is your source? Javiha asked the Egyptian representatives. The Torah, they replied. Very well, said Javiha. I too will invoke the Torah, which says that the Jews spent 430 years laboring in Egypt. Please compensate us for 600,000 men's work for that period of time. The Egyptians... Well, the Talmud continues, then ask Alexander for three days. 
by which to formulate a response. And the recess was granted, but they never came back to the table. As you know, lawsuits are filed of all types today. Lawsuits from the frivolous to the serious. And you can watch many of them, even on TV. And that's the nature of our society, isn't it? The nature of our society is a rather litigious society. And there was a time that people didn't sue quite so easily. They didn't even sue churches or wouldn't dare to sue a pastor. But because of abuses or scandals, people are not afraid to take the church to court. The same was true in Corinth. People would sue one another. In Athens, not far away from Corinth, it was a culture. It was a culture of lawsuits. Very common. In fact, in Athens, people challenged one another. People saw lawsuits and court suits as a, as a form of entertainment, much like you might turn on the TV today and watch uh, Judge Judy or, or People's Court or whatever it might be. The legal proceedings of the people of that time was that if there were two people who had a dispute, well, they would try to solve the problem between themselves, but if they couldn't, they sought private arbitration. They were assigned a private citizen who was an arbitrator. There would be a neutral third party, and they tried to solve the problem. If they couldn't, well, it was turned over to a court of 40. Court of 40, and then they were assigned a public arbitrator to each party. And when a citizen turned to 60 years old, they were required to serve as one of these public arbitrators. And if that court of 40 with the arbitrators couldn't solve the problem, well, it went up the ranks. And they were brought before a, a group of jurors, numbering from several hundred to even several thousand. And every citizen, every citizen who was 30 years old or more, would be easily called to jury duty. And so many citizens regularly served as either a party in a lawsuit, an arbitrator, or a juror. One ancient writer said, well, every Athenian was a lawyer in some manner of speaking. And that was the backdrop of the culture of the Corinthian church. That was the society in which they lived. Always a lit litigious type of a society in which there was public debate, there was public arbitration, there were lawsuits, which were very commonplace. When there was a disagreement, you filed a lawsuit, and the Corinthians brought the same thing into the church. And it's no wonder... When they were divided into factions in the church, they were all divided. When there was a disagreement, they didn't decide it among people within the church. They brought it before the public, the public courts, and they sued one another. The Jews weren't quite like that, though. The Jews were people who didn't bring their issues to the Gentile court. The Jews, in fact, they looked at the Gentile courts with disdain. They believed that it was even a form of blasphemy. They settled things within the Jewish community. Why? Because they believed that it would imply that God's word was not sufficient to solve the problems that his people faced. And so all the problems of the Jews were privately solved or brought to the synagogue court. And while under Roman rule, the Jews were allowed to... To, to bring whatever case and do whatever they so chose to do and solve whatever problem it was, except for what? The death penalty. 
which we saw in the case of Christ. So the Corinthians would be very, very attuned to being able to decide their own issues. Why? Because Rome saw Christians as a Jewish sect. They saw Christians as a Jewish sect, even though they might have been predominantly Gentile like the Corinthian church. They saw it as a Jewish sect and you would be able to determine the solution to your own problems. And here, though, in this particular church, they didn't. And Paul writes to them and it says to them that it is to their shame. It is to their shame. Because lawsuits display to the world the disunity and the lack of love within a church. And so here in this text we see and we look at this morning three aspects by which Paul brings the case against them. That, the, that bringing their issues before a world's court would be a shameful testimony by bringing it against another believer. Then he goes on to tell them what the right response is. What is the right testimony? And then what is the true testimony of a Christian? What is a shameful testimony it is, he begins off with. What a shameful testimony it is when two Christians sue one another. And in a series of rhetorical questions here in verses 1 through 6, we see, even in throughout the chapter, he time and time again says, Or do you not know? Or don't you know? Verse 9, verse 2, and so on and so forth. You should know. And he says later on, Does any one of you dare to go to court before the unrighteous, bringing another brother, bringing another sister before the courts? The implied answer is, you should not dare to. And he gives his reasons in rhetorical questions. And the first reason he gives that it is a shame to is why? Because number one, Christians will judge the world. Christians will judge the world. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 2. And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? You see, when Jesus comes again, we will rule and we will reign with him. And we will judge the world along with him. And if Christians are going to be in that place, and the standard is going to be the same, the standard will be the word of God. Can Christians not judge between themselves? Judge the conflicts and resolve them? And the answer is yes. Secondly, Christians will not only judge the world, but they will judge in the spiritual realm. Verse 3, do you not know that we'll judge the angels? Things that we haven't even seen with our own eyes. Paul goes on to say that this is what we'll do. We'll be able, we'll be responsible to make judgments in the spiritual realm along with Christ. And if that's the case, shouldn't we be able to make judgments here in the physical realm? The answer is yes. It's a shame to you because Christians will judge the world. Christians will judge in the spiritual realm. And thirdly, Christians have enough wisdom... To resolve conflicts. Christians have enough wisdom to resolve conflicts. Verse 4. When we look at verse 4, there are a couple of different views on how this is supposed to be translated. The NIV translates it in sort of an irony. And it says in the NIV, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. In other words... 
It's a statement of irony which says, you know what, if you have ways to judge within the church, you know what, it would just be better to account somebody of little account, of little qualification in the church than to bring it before the world. The NAS posits in a different light. It says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? In other words, if you have courts here within the church or some way of resolving disputes, you wouldn't appoint somebody who's just of no account. You would appoint somebody who has some wisdom. Both can be translated in that way. But verse 5 and 6 tell us what he means. For in verse 5 it says, It is so, there is not among you, or is it so, that there is not one among you wise enough who will be able to decide between his brethren? In other words, within the church, within the body of Christ, there are people who walk with God, who know the word of God, who are wise enough to solve disputes between believers. You don't need to take someone to a court and sue them. You don't need to take someone before the court that doesn't care about the glory of God, that doesn't judge by God's standards. In fact, it is a shame on you that you do so, verse 5. Stop doing it, he says. Because when Christians take other Christians to court, they hurt their testimony, they hurt the relationships, they become frayed. It is disunity in the body of Christ and non-Christian judges. They're not concerned about glorifying God, about doing what is right according to the Scriptures. They're not concerned about the glory of God. So in short, he says, don't sue your fellow brother or your fellow sister. It is a shameful testimony to do so. Number two, though, he says, what is the right testimony? The right testimony of being wronged, of the willingness to be wronged. Actually, it is already a defeat to you, he says, verse 7, that you have lawsuits with one another. You see, when Christians take another Christian to court, it's already a losing battle. You lose your testimony. You lose your peace of mind. And in God's eyes, you have lost. In the world's eyes, it's better to sue and to win than to be sued and lose, isn't it? But in God's eyes, it is better To be what? Why not rather, it says in verse 7, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather to be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. It's better to be wronged. It's better to be on the short end of the stick. It's better to be cheated than to what? Sue one another. And that's not to say that it doesn't hurt to be Wrong or lose, to be on the short end. In fact, people can often become bitter, as often the case when people say, oh, it's some, like a bitter divorce or something like that. For a Christian, it's better to be wronged and defrauded. And our response is to forgive, to give deference. Now, this is not to say that a Christian should never go to court for any reason. It doesn't mean that we should never speak the truth when we're called upon or to take a stand for justice or to act responsibly. It's not to say that we shouldn't defend ourselves as well in a public court. Paul did so in Acts 16, 37, 22, 25, and 25, 11. And Paul even brought up Roman law to his defense. To defend oneself, though, wasn't to gain retribution. 
It wasn't to gain any monetary funds for greed. It wasn't to gain revenge. No. I was talking with somebody just in the past week or two that I know. They they have a a one-year-old child. In fact, it's about nine months. And that little child had uh, somehow gotten a a bruise on their head. So they took the, the child to the hospital. The hospital was very sensitive and they, they contacted CPS, Child Protective Services, because of the potentiality of what they saw as abuse. And I think the child was taken briefly away. And it doesn't mean, this passage isn't meaning or communicating that a parent is not supposed to go to, to the court and explain what is going on to defend themselves. I mean, you don't go and say, oh, well, oh, that's fine if they take my son. Better to be defrauded. Better to be cheated. Now, the Bible isn't teaching that we shouldn't go at all or never have anything to do with a secular court. But our involvement is to be with pure motives. And if it involves another believer, we're not to take another believer to court. Worse yet, not only were the Corinthians being sued as victims, they were the ones who were the perpetrators and the instigators. As verse 8 tells us, they were the ones who were defrauding. They were the ones who were wronging others. It's one thing to be sued. It's another thing to sue someone else and take advantage of them. What a horrible situation within the church. But what about non-Christians? Somebody might look at this passage and say, well, this only has to do with Christians. I'm not supposed to sue somebody else if I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to take them to court. But that means I can take anybody else to court. Anyone else, any other non-Christian or whatnot. What are we supposed to do? The principle is to be willing to be wronged and accept the consequences for legitimate claims against us. To be willing to be defrauded for testimony's sake. If you look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, you turn a few books before this. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks to the subject of being sued, the person on the other end being the recipient of a lawsuit. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 to 42, he says there in that passage in the Sermon on the Mount in which he is preaching one of his early sermons, he says in verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. In other words, you see, when there's a personal lawsuit, a personal offense, you are being on the short end of the stick, the recipient of a life lawsuit. You don't fight back with a personal lawsuit yourself. It says don't resist an evil person. And our response is to forgive, to be a peacemaker. Our response is to seek reconciliation. But what does Matthew 5.40 mean? If anyone wants to sue you, Take your shirt. Let him have your coat also. Does that mean if somebody files a lawsuit against you that's a frivolous lawsuit, you should give them everything. In fact, give them your home and your retirement. 
Is that what it means? Well, in that day, people, if they were not able to pay, if they were not able to pay for a legitimate lawsuit that has been settled against them, the court would allow them to make their payment in the form of clothing. They would be able to pay by what they had, by some of their belongings, not simply out of money. And if they didn't have clothing, well, they could voluntarily, though the court could not make them, give their coat. The coat was the outer garment. In the book of Exodus 22, it tells us that a coat was, was to be for a person, to be able to keep warm. In fact, it says that if a man didn't have a coat, you were to, to return his coat to him. Maybe he had lent it to you or whatnot. You were to return his coat before the sun set. Why? So that that person would have something to cover himself, I believe, when it became dark and cold. But a person could voluntarily, if they wanted to, make payment by means of their coat as well. And what Matthew 5.40, I believe, is communicating is that any legitimate claim that is made against you, you pay. You make every effort to pay. And you pay it not only with clothing, but you make it, if it's even your coat, to settle something out of court or to settle with your opponent, to make things that are right. Not some frivolous lawsuit as we many times see today, but be willing to pay for legitimate grievances, especially if a judgment has been made against you. For example, if there is a business owner and he has bought or borrowed a lot of money and his business goes down under, well, you don't run from your creditors. You make it right. You pay back all that you owe to those who have lent you for your business, even though it has failed. Or perhaps there's a personal injury. A personal injury by which a Christian is at fault. They are to do all that they are required to do in order to compensate the other for their injury. And that is the right thing to do, to accept responsibility rather than to circumvent or to avoid it. And biblical principles teach us that when we deal with those who don't know the Lord, when we deal with those who are outside of the body of Christ, we should also avoid taking them to court as a last resort, especially because the scriptures teach us what? In that whole passage, when there is especially a personal offense, we're to forgive, we're to turn the other cheek, be willing to be wrong. When someone asks you to go one mile, you go with them too. You see, a, a Roman soldier could, could come by and ask you to carry his pack for him and walk a mile while you walk too. You do whatever it takes when there's a personal offense. And the Jews would hate that when they would because they hated the bondage under the servitude of Rome. But our heart is to do what we can do and to have a good testimony with the proper motives. To forgive. To be willing to look the other way for the sake of testimony. And again, it's not to say that Christians should avoid all involvement with the court or to say that we shouldn't serve on jury duty or Christians cannot be judges or Christians cannot be attorneys, etc. That's not what it's communicating. There are many cases, perhaps, that Christians will be involved in addressing things in a secular court. Maybe you're called to be a witness to a fraud case, corporate fraud or some sort of criminal activity. Perhaps you, it involves some disposition of, of assets or abuse cases or, or property, etc. There are cases in which they're there. 
But it may mean that even a Christian attorney may refrain from taking a case where there is a Christian who desires to bring a lawsuit against another Christian. So, when we come to situations that involve the court, Christians are to look and see what is going to be the right testimony for the sake of Christ. What is the true testimony here? As Paul writes in verses 9 through 11, the true testimony of a genuine Christian. And Paul lists here, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he lists a number of things. Fornication, idolaters, adulterers, all of these individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. And why does he stick this in here? He's told us that it's a shame to take believers to court. The right testimony is the willingness to be wronged. But what is the true testimony of a believer? Rather than the way that they're acting, he inserts this in here because he provides a contrast and tells them, you know what, this is your old life. Look at this list of things that you were. He tells them all of these people, they act like this. They act like the world. They are worldly They are people who are drunkards. They are people who are covetous. None of them will be inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. And he lists all of these lifestyles. And he says those who are, for example, fornicators. And we'll go through some of these quickly as to what they are. Fornication has to do with sexual immorality in general by unmarried individuals. Includes things like promiscuity or pornography or deviant behavior and other immoral sins. Things that are perhaps even now commonplace on television that are held up as good or fun. Fornicators are those who are unmarried. But adulterers are those who have sexual immorality outside of the marriage relationship. And Jesus says it is not merely or not only those that are physical. It could be even lusting in one's heart. Then we have those who are homosexuals and the effeminate. When someone is gay or lesbian, there's always a dominant partner and one that is more docile. There's always one who is stronger and one who is more tame. And the effeminate is the tame of the two. Both are sinful perversions of God's pattern for marriage and relationships. Some have tried to say, well, this is perhaps something that they didn't accept back then, but today they do. Now, if you take that out of this passage, then you have to say, well, look, it's okay for people to be adulterers. It's okay to people people be thieves, etc. They just didn't understand in that day what thieves were like. That's how they were born, perhaps. That would be ludicrous. Revilers are people who, who, who destroy with their tongue. They berate others. They disparage them. They slander them. They ridicule them. They tear other people down by the way they talk. And you might even hear some of them when you listen to certain talk radio programs. They're always tearing down someone else. That's a reviler. Then we have a set of individuals. The covetous, the thieves, and the swindlers. Covetous people are people who see what others have and in their heart they covet, they want. Maybe it's their, their, their life, their career, their money, their spouse, their, their education, their fame, whatever it might be. They want it. Thieves are covetous people. They just go a step further and they take what they covet. 
They take what doesn't belong to them. We think to ourselves, we're, we're not thieves. But you find thieves, theft, commonplace. It could be stealing the credit that belongs to someone else. Or maybe students who cheat or plagiarize someone else's work. Maybe even stealing the glory that belongs to God when someone compliments you and you think to yourself, oh yes, that is so wonderful of me, rather than giving glory to God. But then there are the swindlers, the swindlers, the people who extort or embezzle. They do something that takes unfair advantage of someone else. You know, people swindle in all sorts of ways. People swindle by false advertising. You sell a car and you don't tell them all of the things. You're not upfront with them about how your house is built on an earthquake fault. Well, you better tell them. You're swindling them. Dishonesty. Swindling them. Then there are drunkards, those who are addicted to alcohol. Seems like many people today think that a party isn't a party unless there's alcohol. They think that there's nothing big about it. Then there are those who are idolaters, many forms of false religions. But in our heart, in our heart, there are idols, idols of the heart that take the rightful place that God has to be first in our heart. All of these things are characteristic of those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not to say that Christians do not fall and stumble in areas. You could have a Christian that has had too much and becomes drunk. You may have a Christian who has done something like adultery, yet repents and is still saved, but one that is characterized by these sins, one that has a pattern of life that is according to these ways, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. There's no such thing as a Christian homosexual, Christian practicing thief, a Christian who is a practicing swindler. A Christian who is always covetous. Unless anyone has pride against others who are like this, Paul says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. The church at Corinth was made up of ex-thieves, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-effeminate, ex-people who were drunk, ex-idolaters. And that's what the church is made up of. You and I were ex-something before we came to know Christ. You were an ex-something, weren't you? You were an ex-angry person. You were perhaps an angry, prideful individual. Perhaps you were an ex-drunkard yourself. Perhaps you were whatever it might have been. You were something before you came to Christ. But you, it says, were washed. But you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of Christ. And that's what God did for them. That's what God did for you. And that's what God did for me. He took us. And He washed us. When I was in Uganda, there was a little boy that we'd come across in the orphanage. He was about one or two by that time. But his story was that he was abandoned by some reeds. And it was in this area where they, where they washed the, the motorcycles. And they took a lot of water and they washed these dusty motorcycles down. And there was a lot of water there. And so when this boy who was abandoned, this baby who was abandoned, was found, the orphanage named him Moses and they nursed him back to health and now he is happy and smiling and playing in the orphanage they saved his life 
That is what God did for you and for me. Every person here, you were an ex-something, but God took you and you were helpless in your own sin. And God took me and He cleaned us off. He washed us from our sin. And He sanctified you and He helps you to grow. And He declared that you were right and He was declaring that you're a child of God now. All because of what Christ did for you. And we're to be like that. There's no pride in that to say we're better than someone else. There's nothing that makes you or I inherently better than someone else. Except that we have been recipients of the grace of God. Recipients, the gift of God. The gift of grace in which God has made you what you are. You say, oh, I don't, have a, I don't have a temper or I'm much more mild manner or whatever. That's because of what God has done in your life and in mine. And glory goes to God. And Paul writes here, don't go back to that sinful life. That's the function of this passage here. Don't go back to suing one another. Don't run back to your old ways. Don't make choices that lead you away from God. I have a missionary friend in Cambodia, as I've shared with you before, who's adopted seven children, Cambodian children. Every so often, they seem to find one that no one wants, that no parent, and these orphans, and they they adopt them. And in his prayer letter in Easter, he wrote this. said in the Bible, the Apostle John writes in his third letter in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And boy, isn't that the truth. To see your children trusting the Lord and walking in the truth stirs up unspeakable joy that we find in believing in our great Savior, Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there is no greater pain and discouragement to see one of your children walking away from the Lord and watching them exchange the truth for a lie. It's like having your not enough oxygen to breathe, like someone hitting you in the gut. The last few months have been very challenging and our hearts are very heavy as we continue to trust and wait upon the Lord. On January 1st, one of our girls, Bore, ran away from our home. Over the past year, Andrea and I have been working with her and dealing with some very deep strongholds in her life. Instead of working through the issues, Bore ran away. After about a week of desperately searching for her, we found her living in the middle of destruction and chaos. In talking with her, she told us that she hated God and all that He had done for her. She told us that she wanted the power to do what was right in her own eyes. You can only imagine how we all pleaded with her to come to her senses and to stay. We prayed for her as a family and continued to plead with her to stay, but in the end, she decided to leave Needless to say, we have been perplexed and discouraged to see her fall so far from grace. Unquote. The same thing was happening with the Corinthians. Many of them had reverted back to their old ways of living. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. And in arrogance and pride, they began to sue one another, taking each other, and they were not willing to be defrauded. Even when it costs a lot. Last week you heard some missionaries share Jerry and Candace Bingham. And their school had a disgruntled teacher who took them to court and sued them. 
for thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. Rather than to make a bad testimony in the courts in which they were trying to minister as Christians who were making a huge impact in that area, they conceded. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be cheated? Even though they themselves were having a difficult time making ends meet in the ministry. Why not for the sake of testimony? These Corinthians weren't like that. They were suing one another. It was a shameful testimony. And Paul reminds them, you should not do so. Take your brother to court. Because someday we'll judge the world. Someday we'll judge angels. And you yourselves have people who are wise enough, who walk with God, who know the Word of God, that can resolve conflicts between yourselves. It is a shameful thing, but the right thing is what? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wronged? For the true testimony of a Christian is what? Not to run back into your old patterns of life. Not to be like the rest of society, which says what? When somebody does something, you get back at them. You flail your own lawsuit at them. That's not the way to live. But the way to live is to what? Forgive and be willing to be what? Wronged for the sake of our testimony in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your goodness and how difficult it is, O God, when we are on the receiving end, being wronged or being defrauded. How difficult it is. O Lord, it is for your sake that we desire, Father, to do what is right, not in our own eyes, but in your eyes. And may you grant to us the strength to do so when the time comes. For your glory and your name's sake, amen.